This is Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. I'm your host, Dave Gorham. This episode, when Eastern Airlines Flight 66 crashed moments before landing at JFK International Airport, is a two-part episode, and you're listening to part two. Since this is part two of a detailed account of the meteorology, air traffic control, and piloting issues related to the June 24, 1975 crash of Eastern Airlines Flight 66, I'd like to ask that you listen to part one first, if you haven't already, of course. In part one, we covered the crash itself, as well as the weather at the time of the crash, the weather forecast, including the original forecast that the Eastern crew had, and the updated forecast that they never received. Plus, we took a look at the airports, both the destination airport of Kennedy and the alternate airport of LaGuardia. And since I introduced myself at the beginning of part one, I'll skip that this time and jump right into our first chapter of part two, which is air traffic control. It's important here to know that the air traffic controllers were working hard to manage their priorities on this Tuesday afternoon in June. It's perhaps easy to say the controllers were simply feeding planes directly into the thunderstorms. But remember, they did not have any warnings or bulletins from the National Weather Service, and although they could see the rain and the dark skies to the north, they couldn't see much else. The NTSB AAR, that's the National Transportation Safety Board, and the Aircraft Accident Report, mentioned that they saw thunderstorm cells on their radar screens. There was no mention of any action they took based on these observations. However, I'm sure it was useful for situational awareness, as well as vectoring planes around thunderstorm cells. That said, ATC radar is tuned for airplanes, not weather. It will show weather, but in a diminished capacity. And by weather, I mean precipitation, not wind shear. For radar weather data, Controllers rely on more detailed information from the National Weather Service. The controllers are not allowed to forecast any weather based on what they see on their radar screens. Today's Doppler radar can see wind shear, but at the time of the crash, Doppler radar was still 15 years away, and we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. Plus, I mentioned the controllers were very busy. Peak traffic at Kennedy was between 3 and 7 p.m., and by shortly after 3, the arrival of the deteriorating weather was already causing delays. An additional runway was brought online to help ease congestion, but visibility was so low due to heavy rain that it was only used briefly. By quarter to four, about 20 minutes before the crash, all inbound traffic was held at a holding point away from the airport, and one by one, planes were directed to runway 22 left, the only active runway. Five minutes later, low-level traffic from Philadelphia was suspended. Five minutes after that, departure traffic was delayed, then inbound traffic was held or slowed. Just three minutes before the crash, inbound delays due to the weather were 12 to 15 minutes. The controllers in the tower were so busy that the controller who talked to the planes that landed just before 66 stated that he was so busy with his duties that he did not have time to pass the reports from Flying Tiger 161 or Eastern 902 to his boss, the assistant tower chief. A reminder from part one, Flying Tiger 161 and Eastern 902 almost crashed as they landed ahead of Eastern 66. 
161 was slammed by a downburst so hard that even with nearly full power, the DC-8 could not overcome the wind and climb away from the runway. Though he wanted to initiate a go-around, he could not. His only option was to land. Behind 161, 902 was able to perform a successful go-around, but similar conditions pushed 902 down to about 100 feet above the ground before they were able to climb away from the danger. Because of the severe wind shear near the landing end of the runway, the captain of 161 recommended to the tower controllers that they should change the direction of the runway. The tower did not make this change. And in this populated and congested part of the world, Kennedy Airport is not an island unto itself. There are two other major airports in the immediate vicinity, LaGuardia Airport to the north and Newark Liberty International to the west. All three of these airports have runways oriented in the same way, so all of these airports have to coordinate their runway operations together. Another item to remember, thunderstorm downbursts, or microbursts, were hardly even known of in 1975. Like pilots, air traffic controllers were not well trained in this area. In 1975, even meteorologists didn't fully know what they were. That said, one of the major issues of this crash was the runway selection. Runway selection and direction is the responsibility of the tower chief. Kennedy Airport has several runways, so you may ask, why not just switch operations to a different runway? Or, as suggested by the Flying Tigers pilot, just switch the direction of the runway to avoid the wind shear at the one end. Ideally, planes should land with a headwind, not a tailwind. The wind shear the pilot noted at the approach end of runway 22 left was causing significant issues for landing aircraft. So, why didn't the controllers just switch runways? Well, the bigger the airport, the bigger a problem this is. And this is a big airport. In addition to being very busy, the controller's hands were tied by technology, equipment, and regulation. The procedure of switching runways is so complicated that the process is managed by a computer. One of the primary considerations, believe it or not, is noise abatement. Noise abatement is how airports, airlines, and aircraft manage and reduce the amount of noise at an airport. Not only the obvious noise caused by the airplane itself, but also when the noise occurs. Kennedy Airport is surrounded by communities that includes hundreds of thousands of people. It's very important for any airport to fit into the community and to try not to irritate the very people that live outside their gates and likely work within. Noise abatement regulations go a long way to keeping the peace. The 727 was initially considered a loud airplane, so it was later fitted with equipment to make it quieter. This was called a hush kit. Hush kits were, and are, required in order for loud airplanes to land at airports with noise abatement restrictions in place. Airports like JFK. Another way to reduce the noise is to restrict or limit overnight operating hours. Airlines can also help by scheduling louder airplanes to other airports. Another way to help reduce the noise is to limit the use of the runways. In this particular case, runways at JFK were limited in use to just six hours at a time. In the hours and minutes leading up to the crash, runways 31 left and 31 right had already reached their six-hour limit, so they were off the table. Now, a safety issue could override this regulation, but that brings into the equation technology and equipment. 
There was no way for the controllers to know about the wind shear at the end of the runway or the safety of the airplanes, their crew, and their passengers. There were no wind shear sensors out there, no radar, no anemometers to indicate wind speed or direction. And even though it was 1975, I'm surprised that for such a big airport, only one anemometer was in place. The anemometer is the instrument that measures wind speed and direction. At Kennedy, there was only one, and it was located mid-runway, or about three-quarters of a mile from the runway threshold. That would be almost 1,300 meters. Today, I believe there are three anemometers, one at each end of the runway, plus the one located mid-runway. Based on the wind speed and direction, regulations are in place that determine the direction of the runway. However, at this moment, the mid-runway anemometer was indicating wind speed and direction that was almost perfectly aligned with the runway. Despite the Flying Tiger pilot's comments, the controllers looked at their instruments and saw no real reason to change the direction of the runway, especially when considering the consequences of changing. Each and every plane approaching Kennedy would have to be given new landing instructions and then given time to execute those instructions. While this is happening in the air, ground controllers would likely issue a ground stop so that all taxiing aircraft could then be redirected to either different runways or the opposite ends of the runway where they were already holding for departure. Because of the close proximity of JFK, LaGuardia, and Newark airports, this may have to happen at all three airports at the same time. A runway change could easily add 30 minutes at a busy airport and really throw a major wrench into the air traffic control procedures. This will lead to inconveniences for the passengers, of course, but it will also lead to fuel considerations for the crew. Airplanes don't fly with full tanks. It costs money to lug around unused fuel, so they try not to do that. They fly with just enough fuel to reach their destination and then just enough additional fuel to reach their alternate. If the controllers at Kennedy were to change the runway orientation, the first thing every pilot would do is look at their fuel gauge. This is likely true for every plane in the airspace, but fuel was indeed a consideration for Eastern 66. When considering the delays and possibly diverting to LaGuardia Airport, one crew member on 66 commented, quote, one more hour and we'd come down whether we wanted to or not, unquote. Let's change gears for a moment and talk about the plane. Or maybe I should say, let's change gates. The Boeing 727 was a popular narrow-body jetliner that first flew in 1963. Boeing built more than 1,800 of them. The tail number of Eastern Flight 66, the N number, was November 8845 Echo. It was owned by Eastern Airlines and was certified and maintained in accordance with the FAA regulations and requirements. The plane was just a few months shy of being five years old. This particular version was the stretched version, which allowed for approximately 30 additional passengers over the standard length 727. The 727 enjoyed a pretty good safety record, at least later in its career it did. At first, there were quite a few crashes and, unfortunately, a high number of fatalities. It was discovered the problem wasn't with the airplane per se, but the way it was being flown. Here's why. The 727 was part of what was called the second generation of American jet transports. The first gen of jet transports were the ones that replaced the propeller-driven aircraft of the 1940s and 50s. 
These first-gen planes were much larger and typically had four jet engines. These bigger, faster planes required longer runways and therefore bigger airports to accommodate this new form of air travel. But the airlines still needed smaller jet transports to service smaller airports and shorter routes, so the 727 was developed. Not only was it smaller, but it had three engines instead of four, and it was designed for shorter runways. Even gravel runways were okay because of how the engines were mounted higher than more traditional underwing engine mounting. The 727 was what was called a tri-jet design. Two engines mounted at the rear of the fuselage and one mounted high on the center fuselage under the elevated tail. To help with the shorter runways and to help facilitate the slower landing speeds that were necessary, the 727 came with improved flaps that would help it manage these smaller airports by allowing it to land with slower speeds. In the beginning, everything was working great and the plane proved popular. New cities, more cities, better fuel efficiency and economy, good performance and handling, and it was even punching above its weight on overseas routes or extended over water routes because the third engine added an extra measure of safety over a two-engine design. However, there were a number of fatal crashes early on that led to an uproar from the public, four crashes and 264 fatalities in about six months. The uproar was not surprising, I should think. The crashes resulted in cancellation of orders from airlines, cancellations of bookings by travel agencies, and Congress even declared the design of the plane unsafe. They said that the 727 should be grounded. Congress then requested that NASA review the 727 design data. While all this was happening, the FAA held a meeting among all the airlines and other operators of the 727 to investigate their training and operating procedures. The investigating agency, the NTSB, launched an investigation. What they discovered was interesting. They discovered that the plane was fine. It was airworthy and properly certified. The problem was not with the plane, but with the pilots. It turned out that the pilots were using the new flaps system to make high descent rate approaches, which could then lead to excessive sink rates, which would then lead to unstable approaches and the crashes. Once this was identified and corrected, the crashes stopped and the 727 continued on with an admirable safety record. Most airlines phased out the 727 by the early 2000s. Delta and Northwest retired their 727 fleets in 2003. However, quite a few 727s still fly today. There are a number of charter operators that still use the 727 as a mainstay. In the United States, Kalita Charters has four 727s in their fleet. Kalita is the only company contracted with the U.S. government to fly the remains of U.S. service members to their final resting places. If you're a car racing fan, then you may find it interesting that Kalita Charters had its start in drag racing. Perhaps you remember the name Connie Kalita as a prominent name in the sport during the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. He was the first driver to reach 200 miles per hour in an NHRA event and the first to hit 290 miles per hour in a top fuel car. That's 470 kilometers per hour. When I was in the corporate aviation business, I provided weather briefings to Kalita Charters, though if I remember, the briefings were for the International 747s, not the domestic 727s. 
There are still several government operators flying the 727, including the Air Forces of Mexico, Colombia, and Afghanistan. And there are a number of 727s being flown as executive transports. These planes became almost affordable as the airlines cast off the aging trijet from their fleets in the 90s and early 2000s. Perhaps the most famous of these older examples was the one owned by former United States President Donald Trump. He dubbed the plane Trump Force One, which turned out to be some early foreshadowing of another plane that would later come under his control, Air Force One. Before this 727 was Trump's personal plane, the plane was owned by Trump's airline business, branded Trump Shuttle. Trump Shuttle owned a total of 17 Boeing 727s, and later with the demise of Trump Shuttle, the plane then became Mr. Trump's personal plane in 1997. Let me add just one more thing on the former president's personal 727. You can own a piece of it. Yes, that's true, you can. In 2015, a company called Moto Art bought the former president's plane and has proceeded to cut up the fuselage, at least part of it, to make luggage tags, keychains, and money clips. The skin of the plane is cut and polished, and then the individual pieces are assembled by hand. Perhaps not surprisingly, the collector pieces made from Mr. Trump's plane go for three or four times the price of the less famous aviation mementos offered on the website. Go to plaintags.com to own your own piece of aviation and presidential history. Today, the former president's personal plane is a Boeing 757. Let's get back to the 1975 crash, and I think we should also examine this crash from the perspective of the cockpit. This was a talented crew. The captain, John Clevin, had more than 17,000 total flight hours and more than 2,800 hours in the 727. He'd been with Eastern for almost 25 years. The first officer, William Eberhardt, had been with Eastern for almost nine years and had over 4,000 flight hours in the 727. And the flight engineer, Gary Gurin, had been with Eastern for seven years and had more than 3,100 flight hours on the 727. But let's also remember that in 1975, air crews had little knowledge of thunderstorms and the potential for damage that these storms could produce. In a survey of pilots taken in 1985, it was revealed that most pilots would likely fly through a thunderstorm on final approach if the storm stood between them and the runway. That's a good indicator of the pilot mindset at the time, and the survey was taken 10 years after the Eastern crash. However, this is less a problem with an individual pilot, I think, and more related to training and the culture within the aviation industry. And it's important to note that many pilots in those days weighed a substantial bit of their decisions to proceed with an approach based on the experiences of the pilots who had landed just ahead of them. This was a valid consideration at the time, so it was critical that the reports from the Flying Tiger 161 DC-8 and the Eastern 902 plane be passed to the landing pilots, like the crew of Eastern 66, except they were not. That said, thunderstorms are much better understood today than they were 30, 40, or 50 years ago. Thunderstorms are dynamic. What happened two minutes ago or two miles ahead may mean something, or it may mean absolutely nothing. Pilots understand this today, and they give thunderstorms a wide berth, and nobody flies through or below a thunderstorm because the plane ahead of them did. 
Pilots and air traffic controllers are much better trained, and the speed of today's technology and communications means that information reaches the flight deck minutes ahead of when it did 20 years ago. And in some cases, that means information arrives in time to be useful, even life-saving, whereas it wouldn't have arrived at all before. Okay, so we've talked about the crash, the weather, the plane, some of the air traffic control procedures, and even the cockpit mindset. And soon we'll talk about the NTSB findings and a few more items. But I want to talk about what was happening in the science of weather forecasting at the time, as well as the man who was spearheading some of this leading-edge science. At this time, in 1975, as I've mentioned, thunderstorms and their development cycle were not well understood. One man, Dr. Ted Fujita, however, was putting the pieces together and had a better understanding than anybody else. Although his colleagues sometimes scoffed at many of his ideas, Dr. Fujita was bold and liked to think outside the box. The crash of Eastern Flight 66 brought Dr. Fujita's research into the light. And I say that because prior to this crash, his advanced theories of thunderstorm development and life cycle were unproven. However, Dr. Fujita had been studying thunderstorm and tornado development for decades and had even been dubbed Mr. Tornado. When Eastern 66 crashed, some witnesses said the plane exploded in midair. Others said it dove right into the ground. Even to the investigators on site, the exact cause of this crash was a mystery. The NTSB had the data, but how did these wind forces materialize and why were they so localized? Why did they affect one airplane and not another? The investigators called in Dr. Fujita to help. He was able to determine that yes, this was a microburst, a term he had already coined. Yes, it was very localized. And yes, damage like this to a plane of this size is very possible. It was generally accepted at the time that a thunderstorm could not do this to a large airplane. So Dr. Fujita's explanations were not readily accepted. However, this began a dialogue that eventually would lead to wind shear detectors installed at many airports around the country. Immediately following the crash, research conducted by Dr. Fujita, the University of Chicago, and the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which you may know as NCAR, led to the development of the Low-Level Wind Shear Alert System, or LLWSAS. This system was installed quickly at many airports following the Flight 66 crash, as the crash confirmed various principles that the researchers had already been examining. The system consists of equipment that measures wind speed and direction at a given location, primarily using an anemometer, as well as radio transmission equipment that ties together multiple anemometers and relays the data to the air traffic control tower. There is a sensor installed at the center of the airport and as many as 30 or more remote sensors around the airport. This system will compare wind speeds and directions on the airport grounds as well as along the approach and departure paths. Wind shear and microburst alerts are then issued for specified criteria related to the changes of airspeed around the airport as well as specified distances along the approach and departure ends of the runways, generally below 2,000 feet or more than 600 meters. The original LLWSAS equipment was installed within about one year of the eastern crash, and more than 100 systems were deployed within the next 10 years. There have been significant upgrades over the decades, and the newer systems can monitor and alert for parallel runways and crossing runways. 
At airports with terminal Doppler weather radar, the low-level wind shear alert system works in conjunction with the radar, but at smaller airports without Doppler, the system functions independently. Terminal Doppler weather radar was deployed in the 1990s and functions in a way that allows the radar to detect wind velocities moving away from and toward the radar antenna, as opposed to traditional weather radar which can only detect precipitation. This has been an incredible upgrade to the aviation safety network around the United States and the largest number of airports with low-level wind shear alert systems are in the United States. You can imagine that this is an expensive system to install and maintain, and this has therefore limited its use to only the biggest airports. As great as it is, it's not without its faults. Sometimes wind shear and microbursts are so small and localized that the sensors will miss a dangerous wind condition. Case in point, the 1985 crash at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport of the Delta L-1011. This crash was due to a microburst, but despite the low-level wind shear alert system installed at the airport, there was no alert issued. That said, the microburst occurred well beyond the confines of the airport. The aircraft struck the ground more than a mile away, about 1.6 kilometers, and the microburst itself was even farther away. So this was likely at the very limits, in fact, perhaps just beyond the limits of the LLWSAS network. Today, the low-level wind shear alert system is not the end-all solution, but it is part of the broad network of airport and aircraft safety equipment that includes terminal Doppler weather radar and low-level wind shear alert systems. Terminal Doppler is installed at airports and will monitor the approach and departure ends of runways as well as the approach and departure paths. The radar will instantly alert controllers and meteorologists when wind shear conditions are detected. Additionally, Doppler radar is installed in the nose of airliners to provide pilots with real-time visualization of wind shear conditions. Also part of today's safety network is the vastly improved communication between pilots and air traffic controllers and the way the weather information moves between the originating sources like warnings from the weather office and observations from the airport to the end users, the air traffic controllers and the pilots. Unfortunately, it would take more crashes, more fatalities, and the eventual development and implementation of Doppler radar to prove out Dr. Fujita's theories and make believers out of the meteorology and aviation safety communities. I've mentioned the 1985 Delta Flight 191 crash in Texas a couple of times already, but this crash has been called one of the most influential aviation disasters of all time. This was not only because of the immensity of the crash, but because of the changes in regulations, policies, and training it brought about, as well as the Russian development of new technology, primarily Doppler weather radar, that was installed at airports and also installed in the nose cones of commercial airliners. If the Delta flight was the most influential aviation disaster, then it was Eastern Flight 66 10 years earlier that started the understanding of what was truly happening within a thunderstorm and how the powerful winds we know today as microbursts were causing planes to crash. It was Dr. Fujita who brought his theories and principles of thunderstorms to the rescue of aircraft and passengers around the world. Because of Dr. Fujita's research and the technology developed around his ideas, the last microburst-related fatal crash of an airliner in the United States occurred in 1994.
Now, if you recognize the name Fujita but can't quite place it, it's because you already know the name from the Fujita scale for estimating tornado intensity based on tornado damage. It's a 1 to 5 scale, F1 being light damage and F5 being incredible damage, F of course standing for Fujita. In 2007, the scale was adjusted slightly and since then has been called the EF scale for Enhanced Fujita Scale. I'll mention the findings of the NTSB investigation in just a moment, but I want to start with this. As the post-crash investigation began, numerous simulator tests were initiated to demonstrate various aspects of the effects of the lateral and vertical wind forces on Eastern 66 along its flight path from the outer marker to the runway. The data used in these simulations came from the flight data recorder aboard Eastern 66. The simulations placed pilots in a ground-based simulator and pitted them against the conditions experienced by the crew of 66. Nine of the 14 pilots were current or former 727 pilots, and there was no mention in the report as to how these pilots were selected for the tests. Were they all volunteers? Were they all Eastern pilots? Were they selected at random? I have no idea. However, each pilot flew several approaches due to the way the various wind profiles were programmed for the simulator. 54 total approaches were flown. On 18 of these simulated approaches, the simulator reached the altitude of the approach lights at Kennedy. In other words, the simulated plane hit the simulated light structures, which resulted in the beginning of the simulated crash. Of the 54 approaches performed in the simulator, there were 31 missed approaches that were flown successfully, meaning the pilot recognized the shear but was unable to land, so initiated the go-around procedures. Only 5 approaches were flown successfully, meaning in only 5 of the 54 approaches did the pilot successfully and safely reach the runway. After the simulator tests, pilots were asked to comment on their experience. Eight of the ten who responded believed that they would have crashed during an actual flight with these conditions and circumstances. Here are several of the notable findings that I've summarized from the NTSB Aircraft Accident Report, published by the NTSB almost nine months after the Eastern crash. Number one. While landing, both the captain and first officer were relying on visual references outside the cockpit and failed to realize the rapid descent rate brought about by the microburst. Had one or the other been monitoring the instruments, this descent rate would have been likely noticed and corrective action applied. Number two, by the time the crew realized the dangerously low altitude, the impact with the light towers just before the runways was inevitable. Number three, in the minutes before the crash, weather restricted the use of runways at Kennedy to just one runway. Number four, despite thunderstorm activity, neither pilots nor controllers took action to discontinue the use of runway 22 left or to change the direction of the landing runway. Number five, the rigid light towers caused extensive damage to the aircraft, which led to the near-complete disintegration of the aircraft and the crash being essentially unsurvivable. Number six, the fire department's rapid response prevented fatal burns to nine of the passengers who ultimately survived. 
The NTSB found that the probable cause of the accident was the aircraft's encounter with the adverse winds associated with a very strong thunderstorm near the approach to runway 22 left. They also noted that the conditions may have been too severe for a successful approach even if the crew had responded rapidly to the conditions. Additionally, contributing to the accident was the continued use of runway 22 left after it had become apparent to both air traffic control and the flight crew that a severe weather hazard existed along the approach path. The NTSB had several recommendations. Among the recommendations, many called for new equipment, both the installation of and the development of sensor and detection equipment. This was specifically addressed by the development and deployment of low-level wind shear alert systems that were put into place at many airports soon after this accident. They recommended improvements in the speed of communications between air traffic controllers and pilots, specifically related to thunderstorms near the approach and departure ends of the runways, and they recommended improvements in pilot training as related to low-level wind conditions associated with thunderstorms. One recommendation included this, quote, expedite the research to develop an airborne detection device which will alert a pilot to the need for rapid, corrective measures as an airplane encounters a wind shear condition." Unquote. In 1975, the device they needed to be invented would later be called Airborne Doppler Radar. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here, and we have, and it's been complicated ground at that. But before I wrap this up, there are a couple of things that I want to mention that don't fit easily into the other chapters of this episode. First, let me talk about the Flying Tiger Line. Many of you've heard of the Flying Tigers. They were a group of pilots and maintainers who joined forces in the early 1940s to help oppose the Japanese invasion of China. The pilots were from the United States Army Air Corps, the Navy, and the Marine Corps before the United States entered the war. When these pilots later moved to the civilian world, they continued to support the war effort by flying cargo and troops with surplus aircraft. Soon after, they formed the Flying Tiger Line, which became the first scheduled cargo carrier in the United States, officially founded in 1945 and then bought by FedEx in 1988. There are some great movies about the Flying Tigers, the most famous perhaps being the one starring John Wayne from 1942. There is even a reference to the Flying Tigers in Star Wars. But on this day, the thing I want to mention is that the Flying Tigers plane that landed ahead of Eastern 66 touched down hard, really hard. The plane's cargo hold was full of cattle. Unfortunately, the landing was so hard that every one of them suffered broken legs and had to be put down. This information came from an interview with the Flying Tigers pilot, but he did not mention how many cows were in the cargo hold. Another tragedy on this day, for sure. And then there's this. Eastern Flight 66 crashed so hard after being ripped up by the landing light towers that only two seats remained attached to their support structure. Those of the two aft cabin flight attendants, the only two members of the crew to survive. This crash, by the way, tends to support the theory that those seated in the rear of the plane stand a better chance of survival. All the survivors of this crash were seated in the rear section of the cabin. It should be noted, however, that five of these passengers would eventually succumb to their injuries. The last thing is related to what I just mentioned. It's about the number of fatalities from this crash. 
Officially, it was first listed that the crash claimed the lives of 112 people, 106 passengers, and six crew. However, one surviving passenger died nine days later. Per the regulations of the time, only deaths within seven days of the crash were counted toward the official statistic. So, this later death was initially, though officially, counted as a non-fatal injury. This regulation was changed finally in 2016 so that now deaths within 30 days of a crash are officially counted as fatalities. So, if you look up this crash on Wikipedia, you'll see 113 fatalities. However, the 1975 NTSB Aircraft Accident Report indicates 112 fatalities. The report does, however, call out the later death and how it was initially reported as a non-fatal injury. That's all for this time on Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. Thanks for listening. But don't go away just yet. I still have a little bit more. If you'd like to learn about the crash, the NTSB AAR, the Aircraft Accident Report, is online. You can actually find it in several different places, but I grabbed it from ntsb.gov. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Fujita, there's an excellent documentary called Mr. Tornado, which is part of the American Experience series on PBS. Truly excellent. He was an amazing and brilliant man. If you'd like to educate yourself on what it's like to land an airplane at JFK International's runway 22 left, there are a lot of videos on YouTube, even some at night that take you through the process. You can easily see the current and much improved landing light structures, the ones that in 1985 ripped apart the underside of Eastern 66. The JFK video I enjoyed the most was one entitled Spectacular Approach to JFK Airport by Peter Masella. Peter relies on his aviation expertise to narrate the video while looking out the window from a passenger seat on a beautiful sunny day in New York. It's as much an educational video as it is a sightseeing video. I enjoyed it very much as I grew up in this area and I don't think I've ever seen it from this perspective. You may also enjoy his other videos as well. On this topic, pull up FlightRadar24.com for live air traffic in real time. Then zoom in on the New York Tri-State region so you can see all three of the major airports, JFK, LaGuardia, and Newark. This will make it obvious how air traffic controllers at all three airports have to coordinate so that the actions at one airport don't interfere with the actions at another. Watching these planes fly in the patterns at these three nearby airports is fascinating. And if you're thinking about becoming an air traffic controller, watch this for an hour or two. I'd like to thank the team here at Radar Contact Lost. On the air traffic control side, we have former U.S. Air Force and FAA controllers Cindy and Michael Hintz and Tony Gorham. Tony and Cindy also take care of the airports and procedures research. Cindy told me that this crash has been part of breakfast discussions with her husband Michael for the past week as I was researching this episode and peppering them both with questions. She thanked me for spurring the lively discussions that started their mornings. In addition to ATC procedures, Cindy and I have been discussing our favorite ways to brew coffee, and she's even shared some dinner recipes. So if you've ever wondered how I rely on Tony and Cindy for airport and procedures research, and now coffee, this is the perfect episode to understand how critical their input has been. Thank you, Tony, Cindy, and Michael. 
On the weather side, we have meteorologists Chris Abair and Nathan Stamford with expertise in climate and severe weather. Meteorologist Joe Spain from Risk Consulting provided me with the surface weather data from 1975 for the New York City Metro airports. Once again, Joe, thank you very much. On the piloting side, we have former U.S. Air Force and retired FedEx Captain Michelle Acorn and FedEx First Officer Larry Gregory. Like with the rest of the RCL team, this episode could not have been as detailed as it was without Captain Michelle providing her perspective from the cockpit and helping me understand how aircraft navigate such complicated airspace. It was very informative and interesting to basically have the same scenario explained to me from the perspective of both the pilot and the air traffic controller. It's the same, but very different. Captain Michelle has a lot of time in the cockpit of the 727 flying for FedEx. 6,400 total hours with time in the flight engineer, first officer, and captain seats. As captain, she has 3,200 flight hours in the 727. Thank you, Captain Michelle. The RCL team is a great team because of these talented folks. They make this podcast detailed and thorough and make sure I don't stray too far off the glide path. I can't thank them enough. With each new episode of Radar Contact Lost, I will bring you interesting but tragic stories of plane crashes from across the United States and from around the world. When these crashes involve the weather as a possible cause or as a contributing factor, I'll rely on my 40-year career as an Air Force broadcast and commercial meteorologist with a specialty of aviation meteorology to explain what happened and why. I'll also lean on my experts in air traffic control, meteorology, and piloting to peel back the curtain to take a closer look at what really happened. If you like this episode, give a like and leave a review if you can figure out how to do it. And tell your friends because word of mouth for a podcast like this is always the best form of advertising. And it seems to be much easier than trying to leave a review. That said, I read the other day that some podcast listeners skip over a podcast if there are no online reviews. The logic being that they don't want to waste their time on a podcast that nobody cares enough about to leave a review. So let me please ask you to leave a review if you're able. Thanks. On Instagram, follow at Radar Contact Lost Podcast. It's the only platform where I communicate with the world. I provide behind the scenes, time schedules, interesting facts, and more. Check it out. We're also on YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, send an email to rclpodcast1 at gmail.com. That's rclpodcast, the number one, at gmail.com. And lastly, let me thank you, the listeners. Thanks for listening to both parts of this episode. I very much appreciate that you stuck it out to the end. I'm happy to bring these stories to you, to all of you who have a love of weather, aviation, and history, just like me. Thanks for climbing aboard and settling in for the latest from the Radar Contact Loss team. I'm Dave Gorham.